This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today, I'm talking to Lynn Enger about a new novel of his called American Gospel. Lynn's the author of a previous book called High Divide that I talked to several years ago when that book came out. Um, how are you, Lynn? I'm doing well, David. Thanks for having me again. Well, it's a pleasure. I, you know, I really, I like your writing. Um, and I know people have probably said this to you before, but it's really, you're a really good writer. <laughs> um, and that, that helps uh, in reading any novel. Uh, it's not just about the story. It's a lot of it is about the storytelling. Yeah, well, um, it's always good to hear. I can't hear that enough. Uh, so I, I, I accept the compliment. <laughs> well, so this book, now, I think in a way there are some parallels I thought of between these two, the two books. I haven't read your first book, so I don't know about that one. Um, but High Divide was very much about family, uh, fathers and a, a father and sons, um, and set in the late late 19th century, whereas this book is set in a much more contemporaneous period. It's one that not everyone who reads it will actually have lived through, uh, but you and I have, and it's set in 1974 during a period I well remember, which was the Nixon impeachment era. Um, so that makes it pretty different from your previous book, but it also, this book involves a father and a son and actually another son. Um, and so it's really about families and generations and how they uh, are kind of the complexity of relationships between uh, family members. Um, but maybe you could talk a little bit about what it was about 1974 that captured your uh, imagination uh, in terms of uh, writing this book? Yeah. Um, well, good question. I, I, um, I actually wrote uh, a draft of a book that became this book in the late 1980s when I was leaving graduate school. Um, and that book, uh, that, that early, early, early draft um, wasn't set in the seventies. It was probably set, you know, in the eighties or nineties when I was writing it. Um, when I, when I came back to the story, um, it seemed like 1970s would be an appropriate time to, to set this particular story, which, which has to do with, um, America's, uh, obsession with apocalypse. Uh, when I was in high school in the, in the early 1970s, um, I remember taking a, a class, uh, in which in a single semester, I, I read the novels, um, what were they? Uh, On the Beach, um, uh, Alas, Babylon, and 1984. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, it, it seems like you know, dystopian fiction, but also fiction about you know, nuclear war uh, was just all over the place and popular. And I, and I was reading it. Um, and also, uh, the, most, uh, the best-selling nonfiction title of the whole decade of the 1970s was a religious title called uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, which predicted the rapture that, or the second coming of Christ um, uh, was going to happen within, you know, a few years by the end of the decade. That was, that was all over the place. And I grew up in the, in the, in the Midwest in a very uh, religious environment. And so when I, when I came back to this novel a couple, several years ago to, to revise it, it just seemed like the seventies were, 
were the decade. That was the decade that that this story belonged in. Um, so, and and then I remember I have such vivid memories of the of the Nixon resignation um, and the political climate then when nobody <laughs> nobody trusted what was coming out of Washington D.C. Um, Nixon was. Uh, thankfully, um, was about to be impeached and, and he did resign. And as I wrote um, this book, of course, um, we're in another uh, political time of political tumult. And so it just seemed like it just seemed like um, uh, an appropriate decade for this for this story. Well, it, it yeah, I mean, it was it, I think it does give you some distance, too, because um what was happening then is different from now, but it also has those resonances as you talked about. Um, so I, I want to ask you about um, uh, the, the character that, you know, I noticed that in the high divide, the one of the main characters is Ulysses. So it kind of sets you up to see that res, you know, kind of the echo of, of the, mm-hmm. of the Odyssey. And um, mm-hmm. here you have named the patriarch of the family, the old man. Well, <laughs> and we should probably talk about a little bit that there, there's this, the, the father, the old man is named Enoch, um, which is also a biblical name. Um, you know, he's the father of Methuselah. But of course, you know, you're, I don't think we want to take that literally because, you know, has no bearing. But I was kind of curious about why, you know, how, how does Enoch... Uh, how does that name, you know, kind of uh, thrum into the book? Um, he is this sort of because he's the guy who, as you mentioned, the rapture. He has this uh, kind of visionary experience and sets up for the end of the world, the apocalypse. Yeah, um, and that's yeah, that's I, that's kind of the <laughs> that's your um, you know what I what would call it. That's the 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 founding um, uh, experience for the novel in a certain way. Yeah, yeah, and it happens. It happens, you know, right away in the novel. Um, Enoch is a, um, uh, like you say, the, um, the the Old Testament figure, and um, I'm I'm known New Test or Old Testament expert, but but Enoch was a was a character who um, didn't die in the way that other mortals die. Um, he was such a um, such a good man that God took him from the earth. Um, just plucked him up, and and uh, he he left the the earth without uh, experiencing physical death, and so it seemed like the, an appropriate name for this character who who also believes, like you say, that um, God has told him in a vision when uh, the world is going to end, when Christ is going to return, and to, for his saints, you know, the rapture, um, and and as it happens, um, he's he's. God tells him this uh, 14 days before the event itself is is going to happen. Um, so yeah, I I, uh, I I did cast about a little bit for for the right name for him, but I knew it had to be an Old Testament name, and and it seemed right that that Enoch would would be it, given Enoch's end. And of course, the son Peter is you know by far no comparison to Methuselah, but he is contrasted to Enoch. He's become a pretty secular guy. Um, you know, he's left Minnesota, northern Minnesota where Enoch lives and where he grew up and has gone uh away, 
basically. And, you know, kind of entered the secular world, first trying to be a baseball player and then becoming a journalist. So he's sort of like, um, you know, a Woodward and Bernstein kind of wannabe, um, you know, at this period um, and trying to make his mark uh, in the, you know, in the world of daily life. So he has rejected his father's uh, whole experience uh, but so what happens, and I, you know, I think it's the story really works well by weaving together the story of Enoch, the son, also um, uh, the woman in, you know, who is named Melanie, or really originally Annie, who was also mm-hmm. from that place and has left to become a movie star in California. So mm-hmm. they all, you know, you sort of bring everybody back into the fold, as it were. Um, and then connect all of the, I mean, there's a lot going on and there's, but, you know, <laughs> but, but really what it seems like they're all in the same, uh, way looking for the meaning of life, um, mm-hmm. you know, their own lives, the greater, like they're not happy with whoever they are. Um, they, they are trying to figure out how to become, uh, something that they really are more comfortable being. That's true for all of them, I think. I think that's really the theme. Yeah, I think so. I think there's an enormous striving in each of them. Enoch obviously has this powerful, powerful need to be um, relevant, not just to his community, but to the world. Um, and he has, uh, what, what would you call it, um, certainly a, a grandiosity that's a, a problem for him. Um, his son um, reflects on that condition that he sees his father suffering from. And um, and he feels it in himself to some degree. He's also trying for some kind of a major stroke. Um, he's, he's first, he, yeah, like you suggest, um, he, he wants to be a baseball star. And then he, and then he uh, now is striving for uh, some kind of a mark in the, in the world of, of writing or journalism. And of course, um, Melanie has won an Oscar, so she too has been has uh, reached the heights. So yeah, they're all very powerful figures with with enormous ambition. Um, and you put the three of them together, and there's going to be some kind of sparks and some kind of energy. Um, I, I I wrote the novel in part just as a kind of personal response, though, to something that I grew up with. It was all around me. I heard it in my household. I heard it in the um, in church, I heard it every place, and that was this um, sense of impending, uh, of an impending hard stop to life as we know it, um, a kind of religious uh, an apocalypse. Um, and it was it was powerful in the seventies, um, and it it revisited my experience over the years. Um, about the time just before I started this novel, and I think it it impacted. Uh, my my choice of how the novel would unfold. Um, in 2011, I teach it at Minnesota State University Moorhead. In 2011, in the spring, it was mid-May. We had a, a graduation ceremony like we like we do every every spring. Um, and as uh, as I went into the hall where the graduation was, there was a a big bus parked outside the hall, and and it said. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it had the date, May 21st, 2011. And 
it was from California, and there was a, a man. His name was uh, last name was Camping, um, who who had a, a radio religious radio show in, in California, and he was predicting at that spring that the world was going to end on May twenty first, twenty eleven, and people from all across the country flocked to 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 that to where he was. Um, some of them sold their homes uh, and bought you know, buses, um, and, and they, they went out on the road, um, advertising, broadcasting this, this, um, what they believed was a reality that the world was going to end on May 21st. And they happened to park outside of graduation here to catch as many people as they could in Moorhead, Minnesota. And that, (laughs) that was, for me, it wasn't even very surprising because I grew up with that kind of awareness that, oh, a lot of people believed this was, you know, this was our future. This was our immediate future. So uh, often the person, I think, writes a story to kind of, um, you know, exercise a demon or, or to maybe um, find a way to address an issue that they're grappling with themselves. And um, that's sort of what I was doing with, with this, uh, with this yeah. novel. Please you know, that aspect it, of it. it's so funny you say that because that is like my essential belief about fiction uh, taught to me in a, in a writing class that I took when I was in college and I've never forgotten it. Um, the, my, my teacher was a guy named David Milch, who's now a fairly famous writer. And he had oh, the, David Milch, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, I know who he is. Yeah. Right, he had this conceptual framework that I have really stuck to for now fifty years, which is that yeah. uh, fiction is about indirection, and that it's this idea that you just expressed really well that um, a writer is solving a problem, not necessarily mm-hmm. consciously always, mm-hmm. not even purposely, no. but. Um, as you, I think exercising the demon is a perfect example, um, or integrating an experience. And the beauty of it is that it is storytelling that is such a human endeavor, yeah. you know, that we, we actually, and of course, Jung would look at it the same way that, mm-hmm. you know, we're the, the myth, the kind of archetypal stories are, come back over and over again because we're trying to resolve problems, concerns, mm-hmm. issues that we're faced with on a daily basis. And that probably also explains this millennialism, that it's a, mm-hmm. it's a storytelling itself to try to um, integrate um, the confusion of experience that we have mm-hmm. uh, in the in the world, and it's not just the modern world because this goes back thousands of years. I think it's been repeated over and over again. The world is always coming to an end for some of us because it's too yeah. complicated, it's too hard, it's too <laughs> challenging in its current form. And when we're faced with, you know, disaster and and constantly reminded of our weakness and smallness against the face of you know the the universe, not just nature, but the universe itself. Um, yeah. You know, we try to figure that. We try to like make sense of that, and we tell stories. And one of those stories, I'm sure, is the world is coming to an end. Of course, the problem that those people have, which you address brilliantly in the book, is what happens when the world does not come to an end. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean the. 
and and what you're saying about story, I'm so I'm so you you put it so eloquently. Uh, even the title of the of this novel, American Gospel, yes. where gospel comes from, the you know the old right. old English um, uh, good story or good news. Um, but I like the translation good story. Um, that's what I was trying to write, and, it, and it's a uniquely American story, especially this this um, kind of lust for the end. Um, I, you don't find it in the same way in in, in, in Europe um, now, anyway, in the 20th century. Um, but yeah, there there is uh, in a certain strain of, of American religion, um, there is this um, knee jerk knee jerk reaction, which is one of uh, projecting uh, onto projecting apocalyptic scriptures onto current events, and and you see it. I've seen it so many times in my life. Just in the last twenty years, you, you saw it with Y two K, you saw it with nine eleven, you saw it with uh, with the uh, economic meltdown, and now you're seeing it with the pandemic. Every time there's a there is a, an emergency, something in society that that scares us. Um, there, there, the same people, um, different people all the time, but coming from the same same groups, um, make these these predictions of, of of the end, and uh, it's nothing new. I mean, it started it started in the 19th century in this country in a big way in about 1840, I think it was, with the Millerites. But it, it's a, it's a routine experience, um, and what <laughs> angers me about it is is that I feel like the way it plays out in this country, especially in the heartland, um, it plays out by by um, manipulating people, people's fears. And, um, and I think that I have felt, certainly as a young person, felt very manipulated, um, and, I, and I still do. Um, and the people who make, the, make these predictions in the religious community, um, never have to pay for them when they're, when they're wrong, when they're wrong, they're just like, oh, well, <laughs> I was wrong. They don't realize, I, I don't think that, that, that there are, that there's damage done. People, people are damaged by this kind of fear. And I think that it even hurts, hurts us in, in the sense that there's so many people in, in the country who sort of buy into this notion that we're, we're almost at the end that they don't think that we need to attend to the present in the way we need to. No, that's true. Um, no, that's the, per, uh, yeah. that actually is the, um, the, the sadness of that, the painfulness yeah. of that, that element of it is that it gives you permission essentially to ignore, uh, uh, the work that you really need to do. It's almost like right. a self-indulgence that says, I'm not going to grapple with, the meaning of what's happening. I'm just going to pretend it's not meaningful and yeah. I'm just going to go and it, everything will be fine because I'm yeah. going up to meet God. Mm -hmm. And it, mm -hmm. it, that mm -hmm. is really, yeah, it is kind of, uh, uh, it could make you angry. I think, uh, to think about that because it's such a betrayal. Yeah. And it, and it also, I think it's, it's trained people. Um, a, a, a large subsection of people. I mean, there was a Pew report um, a few years ago uh, that did a, did a survey of American adults, and 40% of American adults um, 
and you can look this up to see if I'm right, but my memory is 40% of American adults believe that that the the second coming or something of that nature, the, the end, would happen before by by mid-century, you know, 2050. Um, that that's a large percentage of people that really do believe we're we're you know at the at the end of time. Uh, and and I think what when you have so many people kind of buying into lies of that sort, then I think they also are willing to buy into lies of other sorts. And I think we're seeing that, that uh, on a daily basis in our political experience today. So yeah, I, I, uh, I feel like the book, even though it's set in the seventies, I feel like it's timely. It feels like I'm writing about, about um, the present in many ways. In fact, I've wondered, I, I could have set the book in the present and it might've, might've worked too. <laughs> I don't think it would. I don't think it right. Would. No, I agree with you. I think it actually wouldn't yeah. have mattered. I, I mean, I, I think it gives yeah. you some distance, some richness of yeah. of experience. You know, because you can work with memory and and kind of understand yeah. the past into the present. But I agree with you. Yeah. It, it, you could have written this book about today, and that's sort of a terrible thing to know. Mm-hmm. Um, in the mm-hmm. you know, and and it, it also, I wonder. Of course, it's it, this is you know we're now pontificating about social social psychology <laughs> right. but but i wonder right. if that millennialism has something to do with the willingness to ignore climate change uh because mm-hmm. if the world is coming to an end and in fact climate change uh climate change scientists are literally talking about the end of the world also but from coming right. from a different direction but it kind of right. it, it allows a millennialist to say, well, sure, it's coming to an end, but that's what's right. supposed to happen. And, um, yeah. it will, so why, why should we try to do anything about it? No, exactly. That's exactly what I, what I, what I meant. Um, if, if the, the, if the whole question of, um, of the, the end of civilization, the end of this, uh, planet's, uh, viability, is something that's out of our hands, then we don't have, then the responsibility is lifted from our shoulders. Right. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a dangerous uh, enterprise uh, to, to be broadcasting this kind of, this kind of, uh, um, uh, this kind of belief. And, and I think, I think we, we have way too much of it happening. So yeah, on the, on the other hand, um, as far as the novel goes, uh, the, the the character of Enoch is is one who I really, for all of his flaws, uh, he's also a character I identify with because I've known so many people who are like him, and, and they're such good people. And so, I, I think I think one of for me one of the um, one of the the uh, factors that comes into play is when I write a story is I need to, I need to discover characters and invent characters who, who I have a kind of, um, uh, what attachment to at the same, at the same time, I might feel judgment for them, but I'm, but I also have an attachment to them. There's always, there's always that kind of push and pull going on for me as a writer uh, with characters that I'm drawing. Um, which I guess is what makes it interesting. And and you, you talk about how, about how a writer is kind of working through problems. I mean, those are the kinds of characters that allow us to work through 
problems. It's not because if they're just black and white, it's simple matter, then there's no story. Right. So it, it was a, it was a tremendous fun to write this novel um, because largely because of Enoch and, and, his, and his son and the kinds of uh, tensions exist between them. Well, there's some great scenes in this story of the interaction of people too. It's, you know, I, I felt that you were really, um, you know, good at capturing the, the, uh, the way people were working together, you know, whether, you know, it, it, either in a good way or a bad way, not always, you know, positive, but I thought that the story flowed really well and, and, there's a lot going on. So I think there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of balls to keep in the air in a story with so many characters. I thought you did that really well. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, you've talked a little bit about Enoch. Um, how do you feel like identified more with him or with the son, Peter, or is there someone else in the character that I don't mean is you literally, but right, you know, right, right. but kind of who you feel most would be the person you'd want to actually know? Well, um, the 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 character who I identify with um, is, is certainly is Peter, the, the son of Enoch. Um, he's the one who whose motivations I understand. He's the one who's um, Emotions I understand best, um, and um, he's the one who I believe is central. Um, central, the, the central character. The story begins with him; um, it ends with him. Um, and 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 I think that that. Um, but but of course, all three of those characters have their own trajectory, their own character arc, or whatever you want to call it. Um, they all they all three move through important an important phase um, and learn something about themselves along the way. Um, but he's the one, Peter's the one that I, yeah, that I definitely identify most with. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, yeah. You know, we're all maybe um, sons first, if we're men, yeah. daughters first, yeah. uh, otherwise, and we are parents yeah. second. So and I think yeah. you're always, yeah. you always feel like you're the, you're always somehow feeling like you're the child. Uh, that it's, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I don't know what that is. And I know people have said, well, until you lose both your parents and are an orphan, you're never really a fully grown adult. But I think uh, we're, I think we're always yeah. children in, in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a, that relationship father and son is, is one I can't seem to get away from in my writing. My first novel was very much a father son novel, but like you mentioned, high divide is as well. And now this one. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm the last person who who's going to comment on that. <laughs> but but I, right. I recognize it. I right, recognize it. right. Well, no, and yeah, I think it makes sense from what you've said at talking about the the way you talk about the millennialist uh, dystopian sort of end of the world that that comes from a you know that's your your self thinking of others rather than being yeah. one um, yourself. Right. So that makes sense that you would be identifying with Peter. Um, so it, now having written them, uh, do they stick around? Um, I know I, I've talked to some writers who feel like huh. once the book is done, the characters actually have done their job and they're, they're, you know, they're not around anymore, but other people have told me that sometimes characters, um, you know, they're still present and they have another story to tell. 
So I'm kind of curious about mm. that, uh, whether that's, you know, whether either of those things is true in your case. Uh, so far in my writing life, um, the, the former has been, uh, are the latter is true. I, I don't, um, once the story is done, I feel like it's finished. I feel like the characters have, have, um, given me what they can. Um, and I don't really know what more I could do with them. That's how I feel about this book at this point. Um, and, and, and my, and my, and my previous novels as well. I know I don't, I don't really imagine that I, that I'll return to, uh, any, any of the characters that I've, that I've written, uh, into my novels. I don't think I, I wouldn't know what to do. Doesn't, doesn't my brain doesn't work that way. I feel like <laughs> I've sort of exhausted, I've exhausted what I, what I know about a, a subject or the, or the characters I've invented. And, and then I'm casting about for what the next, the next project will be. Yeah. So are you, is that where you are right now thinking about the next book? I'm, I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Um, I've done a little, just a little bit of uh, toe in the water work, but nothing, nothing substantial. Um, uh, I haven't, I haven't been writing much, uh, during the, during the pandemic. I had, I had to do some, some copy editing of, of this, this book as it was, as it was moving, moving toward publication, but, uh, I haven't been very creative in the last six months. Well, I think it's also hard, you know, when you've got a book that, you know, when the book is coming into the world, after it's come into the world, um, a lot of yeah. your, I mean, just as we're talking about it today, you're going to inhabit that world of that book, whether, yeah. you know, even if it's done, you're going to live in it for a while, uh, talk about it. And I think that mm -hmm. probably makes it hard to think about any other stories, you know, there. Well, you know, I, that, that makes sense, uh, the way you've, you've characterized it. But in my, in my experience, um, I wrote the rough drafts of, of the, of my second and third novels before the, um, the novels, um, their, their predecessors came out before they appeared. Um, so I wrote a good share of, um, uh, American gospel, um, early, uh, you know, before high divide, um, was, was, well, when it was kind of in starting to starting to be released, um, and um, High Divide actually wrote the whole the whole rough draft before my uh, hmm. uh, before my uh, the first book came out. Yeah. So I usually I usually move really quickly from one project to another. Um, in this case, I think it, it's in, I think it's been largely because of the the pandemic, um, which has just kind of frozen me and and put me in this news reading mode. Um, and, yeah, and I, I just haven't. I just haven't been, felt released to, no, to be able to uh, enter my imagination. I wonder. You know, it's sort of interesting to think about how a large event affects us. You know, I mean, you think about during yeah. World War II, um, or yeah. which I can. You know, that's sort of like another worldwide event um, mm -hmm. that. I don't think a lot. I think as you're, you know, thinking about that, maybe the the best books about World War II didn't come out for several years afterwards. Um, you know, mm -hmm. same with the Vietnam War. That I think being oh, yeah. being in something that is so powerful and so consuming yeah. of your life. Um, yeah. means that it's hard to make sense of it. Just as we were talking about before, the the strategy of the mind in coping with these kind of uh, challenges, the kind of um, massive, almost psychologically disruptive 
um, world events, I think it it takes us a while to process. And maybe uh, the integration work uh, is not possible to do because we're in it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. systems theory says that you can't tell where you are in a curve until you're you're done. And we're mm-hmm. still, you know, we're still in it, so it's hard to uh imagine our way out of it <laughs> until it's over, know, you know, yeah. or more over than we, it is now. We're we're the we're the uh, toad in the boiling water. I know, I hate that idea. I think about it all I the do time. I too, but <laughs> But I but you're you're exactly right. Um I I don't think I don't think it will. I don't think we'll see um, uh, novels about the pandemic or good ones for for some time. I'm sure there are plenty of writers out there scribbling away, you know, trying trying to trying to uh, reflect on it. But uh, and, and you know, there'll be we'll start to see those novels relatively soon. But I don't think we'll see good ones for a while. Yeah, but also I was thinking more not so much about actually uh, the writing about about the pandemic, but it also disrupts the creative as you describe, you know, you're kind of unable yeah, yeah. to focus on anything yeah. because this is such a yeah. powerful, uh, environment. It's so disruptive and so, uh, intrusive. Um, and yeah. of course, you know, we are filtering out stuff all the time every day. That's, uh, because the world is really complicated and, and really hard to comprehend, yeah. but this is so powerful that it makes it impossible to filter out. Yeah. 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 Well, no, I on, on that happy note, um, we should, <laughs> you know, reading a good novel is a great antidote to despair. And um, <laughs> I, I would therefore say at this point, you know, reading um, American Gospel uh, is actually, you know, pretty uplifting and, uh, and rewarding. So I think we can recommend it to people either in the pandemic or not. that's that's good that's good to hear yeah thank you for that oh my pleasure it's been really good to talk to you lynn and i appreciate your taking the time uh this has been writers cast a podcast about books and authors i'm david wilk i've been talking to lynn anger about american gospel novel Mm -hmm.